0: It's filled with wonderful truth, some of which is difficult, but all of which is enormously valuable in shaping the Christian mind and certainly warming the Christian heart. You know, the best theology is that which makes the heart of God most clear, that allows us the privilege of seeing things from a divine perspective, looking down from God's perspective. And that's what biblical theology does. It reveals to us the God who is there. It's not speculative, it's not fanciful or self-flattering, it just reveals the truth. That's the way I like it. And any time you talk about truth, and the deeper you go into what the Bible actually says, you realize the enormous potential for error and the destructive, ruinous results of error. And if what God says is contradicted by men, that can only be to the disadvantage, if not to the absolute overthrow of those who do contradict him. So we have to let our thinking and beliefs be shaped by what God says and, and, you know, it just doesn't matter what human institutions or opinions say because God's word is paramount always, right? And it must be accepted if we are to be rightly related to him. So as I said, the truths you'll find in Romans chapter 5 are wonderful truths but there are many who would deny them or even fear them because the truth A biblical theology of salvation is most satisfying to the soul. And therefore, man-made religious systems can be easily discarded. And people that are all tied up in man-made religious systems fear that. That's a terrifying thing to them. So, what has Romans taught us so far leading up to this? Well, it's taught us that we all need to know about the human condition that we are self-deceived about that, that we need to understand our standing before God naturally. And we need to understand what God has done to restore us to Himself. We've learned how to be justified, how to be made right with God after having rejected and offended Him. And once the objects of His wrath, we find that in Christ, suddenly we're completely in a completely different situation. He has removed the penalty of sin by means of a perfect substitute and we've learned that by believing, by having faith, God puts to our account His righteousness, the righteousness that Christ possesses. Not our righteousness, but His righteousness is put to our account. And that makes us acceptable to God and thereby God declares as a judge that we are righteous. And that is called justification in the Scripture. What theologians call imputation is that idea of reckoning, that he's imputing to us or reckoning to our account. He's putting in our account, if you will, righteousness, granting us divine righteousness. And that's how we are justified before the throne of justice. And this is received by... How do we receive that righteousness? Come on, somebody must have been here the last couple of weeks. How do you receive divine righteousness? Thank you. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you. Six people here know that. Faith, believing, that's how you receive it. That is the way you receive divine righteousness. And it's really just believing God. We talked about last time. Believing God for what he says and what he's done. That he what he says is so and what he has done is real and true. And ever since the Protestant Reformation, this great truth has been the standard by which errors are judged. This is the standard of truth and error. The doctrine was given a name, justification by faith alone. That word alone is really important and it comes from the, basically from the idea there in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, obedience to the law has nothing to do with justification. It would if you could be obedient. If you could be perfectly obedient, you could be justified before God. But since you're not, And I'm not. We need another way. And God has provided another way in Christ's righteousness, which we receive by faith. So, Paul says, Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So that apart is the idea of faith alone. Works add nothing to justification. So, Romans chapter 4 then explains this in a historical example of Abraham, who was justified by faith long before any ceremonies or rituals or um, deeds of righteousness came into play. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, just like in the life of Abraham, Paul argues. And fact, it says of Abraham in Genesis 15:6, and as Paul quotes three times in chapter 4, it says, and Abraham believed God, and what? God reckoned it to him, put it into his account, same idea, imputed to him righteousness. So it says, old as the oldest book in the Bible, this idea of imputed righteousness, of salvation by faith, justification by faith. And Paul tells us that this was recorded for our benefit, he says, for yours and for mine. So we too, having the knowledge of Christ, knowing how God solved the sin problem, we might receive justification. How? By faith alone. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Just the way he concludes there. He says... Now, not only for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also. To whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The very last word of chapter 4 is justification. And so the next word in the Bible, verse 1, chapter 5, first word, Therefore, so he's talking about justification, and now he says, therefore, knowing all that we've just said and all that we've been studying for the last many weeks here, in chapter 5, Paul is going to expand on the great truth of justification by faith alone. He's going to flesh it out. He's going to tell us the ramifications of this great doctrine, and we're not going to get too far today, unfortunately, because I guess I got all caught up in the first idea here, but um, what all is included in this idea of being justified as a gift of grace. Received through faith. In which God's righteousness in Christ is reckoned to us. What is included in that? Well, first notice an important verb tense here. He says, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 5, having been justified by faith. Almost all translations translate this that way. Having been, because that's the correct way to translate this. It's a very special tense in Greek. You know, Greek has tenses like English does. We have you know, past and present and future and some, some kind of odd tenses. Well, Greek has a whole lot of tenses. It's a very expressive language. And this is an aorist-tense participle. We don't have anything quite like an aorist-tense um, and normal everyday kinds of speaking English. But aorist is something that's done with. It's all accomplished. It's past. It's past and it's over. These grammar uh, points are extremely important to pay attention to. A Christian is a person who has been justified. You say, "Well, okay." No, it's not just okay because there's a lot of people that say no. In fact, one of the largest churches in the world says that you are not justified now. That you won't know if you're justified until you're after you're dead that uh, you have to accumulate grace and if you don't get enough grace at the end, you won't be justified. And that's not New Testament theology. The New Testament says, therefore, having been justified by faith in the past, something that's already done, it's a really important idea. That means that God has already declared us righteous in Christ and that is finished. Sin is paid for utterly. Utterly. In God's record book, when he looks at our account, it says righteous. Because of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, just this, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Of all the kinds of peace that people long for, This is the one that matters most. Only men who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ have peace with God. Everyone else is at enmity with God. Enmity. You can hear in that word something pretty close to enemy. Basically the same idea. It means conflict, strife. God is their enemy. Well, how can that be? Because God is the righteous judge of all moral beings that he has created. And human beings are career criminals by the standards of the righteous judge, of divine justice. So, when human beings who are not justified... Reflect on the God of the Bible, not a God of our own imagination, the God that's really there, the God of the Bible, the God that reveals himself in Scripture, the, you know the God that's angry sometimes, who will judge sin, who threatens all kinds of horrible destruction on sin. That God we hate in our natural condition. We feel the same way about him as the career criminal does about the police or magistrates. They're the bad guy. They're the enemy. Men are enemies of God in the same sense that criminal rebels are enemies of lawful authority in government. Very much the same way. Someone might say, and I hear this when I talk to people, I'm not God's enemy. I don't have anything against God. Just let me alone. That's all I'm asking for. He can do his thing and I'll do my thing. I'm not his enemy. I don't have anything against him. That's exactly what criminals think. You guys just let me do my thing and you do your thing and we're cool. It's when you start trying to put me in jail. That's when I get upset. That's a very criminal attitude. They want complete freedom to do as they would, as they choose. No law, no restrictions. But you know, the problem is that's not the universe we inhabit. Yes, a man can say, I have nothing against the king. But when he robs the king's subjects and travels the king's road and destroys the king's property and ignores the king's law, he is at enmity with the king whether he feels like it or not. He is subject to the king whether he wants to be or not because that's whose country he's in. This is God's universe. He made it. He rules it. And if you don't like it, make your own. You know? But while you're living in His, you're subject to Him whether you want to be subject to Him or not. Sin, the New Testament says, in fact, in First John chapter three it says it directly, it says, Sin is lawlessness. It is violation of divine law. And sinners deserve and will receive divine condemnation, unless they receive God's mercy on God's terms because it's God's universe. That just makes sense. It makes so much sense you wonder why everybody doesn't go, oh, okay. Well, the reason they don't is because in our, in our natural condition we are career criminals and we hate the idea. As sensible as it is, it's just like to a regular criminal, as sensible as it is to have a, 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 an ordered society where everybody has to obey the rules for mutual protection and say, well, I don't want to live that way. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, but I just don't. And I hate that. I hate the oppression of it. I want to do my own thing and win my own way. Well, that's exactly our attitude in God's universe. You have to come to God on His terms. And His terms are surrender. Surrender. Surrender the rebellious heart and will and humbly receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior from sin so peace with God I just like the way that sounds peace with God is a condition that is dependent upon justification therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ it's not a feeling or an emotion as it's being described here it's a condition of life Look at the book of Ephesians real quick. We're going to jump over a few, few books there past Romans. Ephesians chapter 2 begins with a, a quick summary of the human condition. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of the great little gospel sections in the whole Bible. It just has the whole thing right there. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul's writing to a church, a group of Christians, so he's talking to them about their previous life. If he was writing to a bunch of non-Christians, he could say this is true right now. But he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, how could they be dead, right? What is death? Death is to be separated from God. Death is not the cessation of something. Death is a separation. When you die your spirit and your body will be separated. That's what it is. When you die spiritually, like Adam and Eve, when, as soon as they had sinned, what happened? They were expelled. They were separated from God. They died. God said, Dying thou shalt die, and they died spiritually. Later they died physically as well. But death is a separation, a rending. So he says, You were dead. You were separated from God in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the bad guy of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the rest of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So man is spiritually dead, separated from God. He's satanically driven, motivated. In other words, the thing that makes Satan function is the same thing that makes people function, which is rebellion, disobedience. And by our very nature, he says, we're children of wrath. That is, we belong to wrath. Wrath is an appropriate thing that abides over us because of our rebellion. Wrath is our portion due to our sinful minds, hearts, and lifestyle. Then follows this wonderful description of God's salvation right after this. He goes, but, that's a really important adversative word there, but, all that's true, but God, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us, He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. See, it's all past tense. It's already a done deal, even though we're still sitting here. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Powerful stuff. And then you have the famous part. For by grace you have been saved through faith And that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace, through faith, that's just what Romans chapter 3 and 4 were teaching us. And then at verse 11, Paul starts speaking to these Gentile Christians and describes how the death of Jesus reconciled them to God and also reconciled them to their Jewish cousins, if you will. In Christ, there is one spiritually unified body and peace peace is found in Him. Peace with God and peace with each other. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, dead, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household It's just great stuff. But notice what he says in verse 14. He himself is our peace, it says of Jesus, breaking down, bringing down the dividing wall. Now, under the Old Testament system, the Jews had a favored position before God by his divine choice. Not theirs, but by his choice. They, had a, they were in a covenant relationship with him which was special. Not that Gentiles couldn't be saved because you can always be saved by believing. If a Gentile believed in the Lord God, they were saved. But they couldn't be full participants in the covenant community. Remember, that whole sacrificial system with the tabernacle or later the temple was teaching men that sin separates you from God. You couldn't walk up and see God and talk to God in the Old Testament. You had to bring a sacrifice. There was a a wall around it, a pure white wall around the tabernacle, symbolizing a purity that kept you on the outside. You had to go through a priest who had to wash himself and you had to go through this whole ritual thing and only once a year did the high priest get to go in to where God's presence actually was, symbolizing this multi-layered distance even a Jew had from God and a Gentile was even farther out. He couldn't even go inside the court to offer sacrifices. He had to stay outside. In fact, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall, a low wall, beyond which um, Gentiles could not go. There was a big problem that happened in the book of Acts when um, Timothy was going to go in there, or they were accusing Paul of bringing a, a Gentile into there, somebody that was uncircumcised. And, but they actually, um, archaeologists have found a sign that was on that wall in a couple of different languages, and the sign reads... No foreigner, or you could read it, no Gentile, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. This is in the temple in Jerusalem. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Subtle. Subtle sort of sign. In other words, cross this line. If you're a Gentile, you're dead. Separation. A dividing wall. Gentiles could worship there, but they had to worship Behind the line. Jews could walk right past. What did Jesus do that brought down the dividing wall? That brought this people who were not of the covenant in? Well, verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Christ, there is enmity. Enemy status, if you will, which comes from the law of commandments. The law rightly marks us out as rebels and guilty before God. And that's what makes the enmity. We hate the authority. But Jesus abolished this enemy status by taking the law's penalty to the cross. He bore our sin, our guilt. Thus, He makes peace by providing the sacrifice that makes reconciliation possible. Verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God. Reconciled to God through what? The cross. So our entire condition before God is turned around. Once we were doomed by His wrath, but by His grace in Jesus, we are fully reconciled. And what can you do but praise God for such mercy? What's left except to just be thankful A justified person is a person at peace with God. Those sin issues have all been dealt with. That means that everything that God had designed for man, all that he wanted to be himself to man and for man by the grace of Jesus Christ, God is that to you and and to me in Christ. All that He ever wanted to be for mankind, He is. He is our Father in Heaven. He is not a Father to those that are condemned. He is a Father to those who are justified. He is our guide. He is our teacher. He is our ever-present help. He is our Counselor, our merciful and gracious King. All His divine power is bent for our good. Not because we're so wonderful, but because He is so wonderful. And when I say our good, I don't mean riches and pleasures and all of that. I mean our transformation, our growth, our desire for truth and for good and um, spiritual renewal, our conformity to the Son of God, our being like Him. And that may entail some difficulty in this life. Maybe great difficulty to learn the joy of obedience and trust and to find a solace in faith in Christ. But in whatever we have to endure down here, there is the Father's promise of complete, unbounded joy forever at the end of this earthly journey. And it takes faith to believe that. The kind of faith that justifies. Because God said that's true. And people down here could say, that's just pie in the sky. You're wasting your life hoping for something that'll never happen. No, faith says, God says it, it's true. That's exactly the kind of faith Abraham said. Tell me to kill my son, I'll kill him because you're going to raise him from the dead because you promise he's going to be the child of promise. Whatever God says, it's true. So when God says that whatever we have to endure down here is just a precursor to joy forever, what does the psalm say? In my right hand are pleasures forever, God says, for the righteous. We're talking about an objective reality, an actual condition, reality. God is at peace with the one who is justified. However you feel, that's the reality. God is at peace with the one who is justified. If you're not justified, if you do not possess the righteousness of God, you are a self-declared enemy of God, an evil presence in His universe. Your very nature prompts you to despise him and turn against his moral will. And it is exactly at this point that the religious person becomes the most deceived person. Now, I say deceived because that is the Bible's word for it. The, the truth is, there is the sharpest division. You know, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And then you try to match that up with all these other verses about peace. What did he mean? Well, he said what he meant. He says some people are going to go for God and some people are going to go against God. And that's going to divide people. It's going to divide families. It's going to divide communities. It's going to divide nations. The greatest chasm possible exists between the justified and those who are not justified. There is no middle ground. You can't be half saved, there's no rewards for a good try. There's no credits for being religious or credit for doing this or credit for doing that and we want so much to think that there is. But there just isn't. You either are or you aren't. It's so easy to be deceived, to to just think it's all sort of the same because religion does all kind of look the same on the outside. What does Jeremiah 17.9 say about the human heart? It is more deceitful than all else. That's why I hate it when Disney movies say, trust your heart, follow your heart. Because, uh, no, you don't follow the most deceitful thing in the world. Follow the most deceitful thing in the whole world. I don't know. And nowhere more than in this matter of sin and salvation or faith versus works or religion versus justification is this more liable to be, um, more liable to be deceived about this. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 uh, real quick. In verse 6, he starts talking about being deceived. But let's start at verse 3 and kind of get a running start to see what people are deceived about. He says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. Dirty jokes, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you're one of these people, you're on the outside. Then he says, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For on account of these things, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why does he say, don't be deceived about this? Because it's the very thing people are deceived about. The vast majority of Americans simply don't believe that. That the wrath of God comes upon people who are immoral or impure or greedy. It's not true. They just, no, it's not true. They utterly reject that notion. In fact, they celebrate, our American culture celebrates immorality and impurity. Just walk through the checkout line and look at the magazine covers. It's it's just delight in all of this stuff. Turn on your television. Actually, don't. But we rent it at the video store. We listen to it on the radio. I mean, it's just a constant bombardment of impurity and immorality and filth. Making light of the very thing that God's wrath comes upon mankind for. So Paul says, Don't be deceived. Now, Christians certainly ought to know better. These very evils that we make light of and delight in, God has targeted with divine wrath, an infinite anger that lasts forever. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. Back there towards Romans a little more. Similar concept. It specifically identifies people who will be excluded from the kingdom on the great day of judgment. Verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. The only way to be saved is to be righteous. And if you're not righteous, your only hope is to receive the righteousness God offers. And that only comes by placing your faith in Him, as we've seen in Romans. So justification is being declared righteous by God on account of Christ's righteousness. So look at verse 11 here. Writing to a church, he says, "...and such were some of you." Some of you used to be these things. Some of you used to be fornicators. Some of you used to be adulterers. Some of you used to be homosexuals. Some of you used to be thieves. Some of you used to be drunkards. Then he says, but, there's that adversative again, you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were, there's our word, justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the justified, even if they used to do that, will be saved, but the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Now, I think non-Christians are deceived because of what Romans chapter 1 says. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They just shut it out of their mind so they can enjoy doing their own thing. They may feel peace. You know, I'm a very spiritual person. That's, that's the thing people always say nowadays when you talk about spiritual things. Go, I'm a very spiritual person. Then you start asking what that means and you get all kinds of bizarre, bizarre stuff. And that might make them feel peaceful. But guess what? They're not at peace with God without justification. They may have it good in life. just Things just happen to go their way. Or they may do some spiritual exercise that makes them feel good. But there is no peace with God unless God is at peace with them. Indeed, His wrath has targeted them for their many sins. Isaiah 48.22 says there is no peace for the wicked. But the Christian can be deceived about this as well, and that's a particularly dangerous situation. Morally, as a culture, we delight in evil. Spiritually, we think that all religions are the same because all that matters is that we have religious feelings. As people say, as long as you have faith in something, that's what all—that's all that really matters. You hear that all the time. We see our neighbors or our loved one or some celebrity religious person that looks really holy like the Dalai Lama or somebody like that. And we want to think that they have some sort of secondary sort of salvation kind of granted to them because they look holy and they do holy things. And they wear robes and they stand around in temples and chant or something. And they have a nice face. And they're, they're kind of animals or whatever. We see how decent some people are And we see our own sin and we just don't believe that we can be saved and they can be lost. It doesn't fit our experience in that sense. The problem is that's reasoning entirely from appearances. Entirely. And if you learn anything from the Old Testament, it's what God said to Samuel about Saul. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart of the Dalai Lama and I'm not picking on him, but He's just a sinner like all of us are and sees sin. Gross sin, rebellion, arrogance, pride, whatever it is. He knows his sins. He knows he's a rebel and he knows he's in need of a Savior. And then we as Christians, we say, but I'm not deserving. No, you're not. That's right. Good, you're there. That's just it. You're an object of divine grace. You are a vessel on whom God has poured out Mercy. Justification is not your reward. It's His gift. See? All you do is believe in Christ to receive that. So we're talking about real basic Christianity here, I know, but we seem to lose our grip on it sometimes in the way we think. Religious feelings and activity don't save anybody. Those things don't solve our sin problem. Well, there's another side of this fact and feeling question too you need to know as a believer. You may not always feel at peace with God in your emotional life. You might not always feel the peace that God wants you to have for a variety of reasons. But if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, if He is the Lord and Savior of your soul and you believe in Him for that, you've trusted Him for that, you've submitted yourself to Him humbly as that, then you are at peace with God. You are. That is your standing. And all the joy and comfort of that peace you should lean on and rest in. The contest is over. Jesus won the victory and the victory is yours. You know, it really should be our mission in life to find the joy of our salvation because joy should be our normal condition. And it isn't. It isn't always for me, certainly. But that should be my goal and your goal, is to find that joy of our salvation, because it's a settled issue, our standing before God. Having been justified, we have peace with God. Not because of us, but because, through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. It's very easy to get caught up in this very temporary world and to lose sight of what awaits us. And when Paul gets into Romans chapter 8, he's going to try to explode our vision into what awaits us so that it will be a transforming thing and that we will have the joy of our salvation. It's very easy to get caught up in our own failures, in our own sins, and to get dragged down so far that we don't want to try anymore. But shake that off and bring your weariness and your despair to Christ and He will renew your heart and joy and Grab onto these doctrines of salvation because it's there that you stand on, and start over, and renew. What did Jesus say to the weary? Come to me, right? He didn't say, "All right, you've that's enough, you're out." Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he said, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Are those the words of a man who is your enemy? No, those are the words of a man with whom you have peace. They are the words of a wise and powerful friend. Peace with God means no condemnation. Justification gives us that. And that's not all it gives. That's just the very beginning. That's just verse 1 of chapter 5. But the rest of it we'll look at next time. Okay, Let's have prayer. Father, we just thank you for the profound reality of our condition before you, which is one of peace. Why you decided to establish peace with us is one of the great mysteries of your love and mercy. That you've done it is a fact of history. And I just pray that whatever we're struggling with, we would lean comfortably in that and always attend to our Lord Jesus, whose heart is always open to us. We thank you, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.